as we come close to, to a close in our study of James and reflect back on what James has placed before us, there is one thing that rings very, very clear throughout his letter. Our salvation through faith in Jesus Christ is much more than just an intellectual assent to the truths of the Bible and the gospel. It is much more than what we often think and live. We have seen that our salvation by grace through faith drastically changes our lives because there is a very practical, practical side to our faith. And that's what James's letter helps us understand. Our faith is intensely practical. Our faith is intensely practical. And that's why we named our series Practically Living Our Faith. Our salvation changes the way we live through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Our salvation changes who we are and how we live. And we can sum it up this way. Christ followers live very differently than those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. He immediately opens up his letter uh, in James, 1, James chapter 1, verse 2, in this way, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Everybody say, Amen. James laid it out on the table. Christ followers live in a real world of testing and trials. Salvation doesn't in any way insulate a Christian from the real world. There are no rose-colored glass lives that we live because we claim Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We are not insulated from the world because we claim Jesus Christ as our Savior. There are going to be trials and temptations. There's going to be difficulties, but we approach them in a different way. And as James continued, we saw that if we find that we do not have enough wisdom to see life from that perspective, then we are to go to God and ask that He would give us wisdom. We are to pray God would help us see life from His perspective. And we see that in James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom in relationship to what he's written before, let him ask God who gives generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. If we want to know how to live this practical life, then what do we do? We ask God for help. We ask for his wisdom. Alistair Begg summed up what James opens his letters this way. If we are going to live sensibly, we need to think properly. And if we are going to think properly, then we are going to need God's wisdom. That is so true. And throughout the rest of his letter, James led us to see that our faith will change our lives in very practical, hard ways. But that will help us to be, grow more and more like Jesus Christ. And that's the goal. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to your word, specifically James's letter, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds, Lord God. We ask, Lord God, that you would help us to understand what you want us to do. We ask, Lord God, that you will help us through the help of the Holy Spirit to want to change and that, Father, we would discipline ourselves as we work out our own salvation. Father, we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So please turn with me to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone, anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing 
praise. As we saw last week, James has begun to close his letter. And as he closes, he's, gonna, he's bringing everything full circle. And as he called for patience and perseverance, coupled with prayer at the beginning of his letter, he returns to those ideas right now at the end of his letter. At the beginning of his letter, he says we need to be patient and we need to work with our patience through prayer. And if you take a look at chapter 5, verse, starting at verse 7, what we looked at last week, all the way through verse 12, he is calling his dispersed flock to be patient, especially when life is full of unjust suffering. That's what he's doing in verses 7 through 12. He is saying, life is going to be full of unjust suffering. You need to be patient. And then in verses 13 through 18, he draws their minds to the importance of prayer again. If you will look at what, starting in verse 13, if anyone among you suffers, let him pray. And I want you to see something. Mark how many times the word prayer is used in verses 13 through 18. Every verse has the word prayer in it. What do you think his focus is? Prayer. In verses 7 through 12 is the idea of patience. And we see that he's bringing us all the way back to the beginning of his letter. We see in the outline of verses 13 through 18. In verse 13, we see the individual praying. In verse 14 and 15, we see elders praying. In verse 16, two times we see friends praying for each other. And in verses 17 through 18, we see a prophet praying. The whole idea that we need to look at over the next couple of weeks is going to be on prayer and what it does in our lives. And as we reflect on these closing topics, we will come to see that James is calling his dispersed flock and all readers through the ages who would read this letter to purposefully set their lives before God and say, my life belongs to you. My life belongs to you. I will be patient and pray as you guide and direct my life through trials and tribulations in ways that bring you glory. And I will rejoice in prayer when you bring wonderful events and material blessings to my life. And James is closing his letter in light of the song that we just sang. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days and let them flow in what? Endless praise. Let them flow in endless praise. And that's what we're going to consider towards the end of our time together this morning. Is your life a flow of endless praise for what God has done in your life? Is your life full of endless praise? What we find in verse 13 is that on any given day, a Christ follower is going to find themselves face to face with trials and tribulation. And that's what he says there, if anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. And then we're also going to see that maybe in the same day or in the same hour, Christ follower is going to come face to face with something to praise God about. And you see that in the second part, if anyone is cheerful, let him sing praise. James is so clear here, a Christ follower living out his or her faith in a practical manner will respond in prayer to either one of those situations. Whether you are suffering or whether you are cheerful, the Christ follower will always respond to those things in prayer, fervent prayer, focused prayer. 
And that's who we are as Christ followers. James opens his comments on prayer by drawing our attention to the fact that when Christ followers encounter suffering, they will pray. When Christ followers encounter suffering, their first reaction is prayer. Suffering Christ followers pray. Notice that James is focusing on the individual in verse 13. Is anyone of you among, suffering, uh, among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. He is focusing on the individual's prayer, the individual's life. The King James translation uses the word uh, affliction more than the, uh, instead of the word suffering. I like that word better because it paints, I think, a clearer picture in our minds of what James is thinking. The word here is a general word that encompasses anything that would cause you or I to say this. This is bad, this is hard, and I don't want anything to do with it. Have you been there this week? week? And James tells us what? A Christ follower will do what in that situation? Pray. So that word affliction encompasses a broad spectrum of of things. Paul uses this word in 2 Timothy 2.9. He says in 2 Timothy 2.8-9, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am, what? Suffering, same word. Bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Paul says, I am suffering for the gospel. I am suffering for my faith. I am suffering for what I preach and what I teach and what I believe and how I live. Later on in his letter to Timothy, he tells Timothy that, Timothy, if you are going to follow in my footsteps, you will also endure the same kind of suffering. 2 Timothy 4, 5, For as you always be sober-minded, enduring, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring what? Did he say you might endure suffering there? What is Paul telling Timothy? If you live a life for Jesus Christ, you are going to have affliction and suffering in your life. Paul is discipling Timothy that if he is going to be an effective minister of the gospel, he will encounter a variety of sufferings, afflictions as he serves God, just like you and I will. James is not introducing a new concept here. He has already spoken of this kind of suffering and how Christ followers must display patience when they encounter suffering, just like the prophets. Look at chapter 5, verse 10. Just move up a couple of verses. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As an example of suffering. He says, think of the prophets. Think of all the prophets How many of the prophets had severe suffering in their lives? Every single one. Every single one. The Jewish folks in the church that James was writing to, they would have immediately thought of the various trials and tribulations and afflictions that the prophets went through. They would have thought about Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, 
when he was thrown into a mud-filled cistern where he would have eventually starved to death if somebody hadn't helped him. That was their intent. They, threw, they didn't like what Jeremiah was saying, and they threw him in a cistern because they were tired of hearing it, and they were just basically going to let him there and starve to death. Think about the affliction that that would have caused in Jeremiah's life. They would have thought about Ezekiel. Go to Ezekiel chapter 24. Ezekiel chapter 24. This has been on my mind. I can't imagine what Ezekiel went through here. Ezekiel chapter 24, verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me. That's Ezekiel writing. Son of man, behold, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall you, your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put, on your, put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. What was the delight of his eyes? His wife? As a prophet, God came to Ezekiel and said, I am going to take your wife from you, and you are not to mourn. You're not to grieve. You're not to let it show on the outside. You see, James's church would have known and thought about how many times the prophets suffered affliction because they were doing exactly what God wanted them to do. James's flock would have understood that the suffering James had in mind when they looked at it from the prophet's point of view was not what we often think of suffering. It wasn't what we often think of suffering. They would have known James wasn't referring to a rough day at the office because of an angry boss. That's not what he's talking about here. They would have known that James wasn't referring to the affliction of having a neighbor who didn't care if she or he uh, kept you up all night because they had their music on too loud. That's not the kind of suffering and affliction that James had in mind. They would have known that James wasn't referring to the suffering caused by a child who was just cut from an all-star baseball team because they weren't good enough. That's not the suffering that James is talking about here. What James is referring to are the facts of life when one of God's people living in a pagan culture experiences unjust persecution or cruel opposition because of their love for God and their obedience to His commands. That's the afflictions that they would have thought about when they thought of the prophets. What do you do when your faith causes you to lose a job because you refuse to support an ideology or an agenda that the company feels all their employees must support? What do you do when your child loses their spot on an all-star team because you told your coach your child can't play on Sundays or Wednesday nights because the church and body life takes priority? What do you do when a same-sex married couple who you are neighbors with, whom you have been kind to, damages your property because they found out you believe the same-sex marriage is wrong in God's eyes? What do you do? What do you do when life brings cruel suffering and affliction to your life because you're a Christ follower, living a life of obedience to God's will, a life focused on one who saved you from your sin? What do you do? It's time maybe to look in the mirror this morning just for a second here. What do we do? 
What is the natural response of us that for, for, for us as sinful human beings when we encounter these circumstances? The natural response is to be discouraged and disappointed, to grumble on how life shouldn't be like this, to complain or adopt a victim mentality that leads us to say deep in our hearts, woe is me. This is the natural response for us as human beings when we are persecuted and afflicted and encounter suffering because we make choices to live for Jesus Christ. But James says the Christ follower's response is supernatural. Their response to persecution and suffering and affliction is to count it all joy and what? Pray. They count it all joy and they pray. I'd like you to listen to a further quote from Alistair Begg. He writes, when he, James, begins his letter with a striking statement that we noticed, that is, taking joy in trials, he is teaching the readers that we have been, what we have been learning throughout all of James, mainly that an important characteristic of genuine faith is that our faith does not collapse when it is tested. Our faith does not collapse when it is tested. Our faith does not cause us to crumble. Our faith causes us to be strong. Our faith causes us to stand firm. Our faith causes us to do what we need to do to bring glory to God. Christ followers are able to affirm what we find in Hebrews. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That's who we are as Christ followers when we encounter sufferings and afflictions. From the beginning of his letter, James has been helping us see that genuine faith in, in, Christ, in a Christ follower's life begins to build a person who can count it all joy when trials come to their lives. And notice, I didn't say it just happens overnight. It's something that we have to go through and build and uh, begin to build the endurance. Why can they do that? Because we know God is in control and has a purpose behind the trials that will bring glory to God. And that is our heart's desire more than anything, is that God would use my life, that God would use your life to bring glory to himself, no matter what the cost, no matter what afflictions he places in our lives, no matter what sufferings he brings into our lives. But the key factor in helping any Christ follower grow in dealing with suffering and afflictions, the key factor is prayer. It's coming to him first. It's laying ourselves before him and our hearts before him in a humble manner and saying, Lord, God, my life belongs to you. I don't understand this. I don't like this. Lord God, I need strength. I need wisdom. I need to find a way to count it all joy as you bring me through this. Christ followers find themselves naturally coming to their heavenly father as a child who is in distress. Just like a child comes on an earthly sense to the father when they're in distress. I can still remember uh, when my, one of my sons was very, very young 
and had a tendency to wander off in the store. And this is one of the times I got in trouble by Kathy because I just said, let him go. And her eyes got about that big. I said, let him go. And they would wander through the store and Kathy would go do her thing. But I was following. I was behind the racks. Wild. I wasn't going to just let them loose. And then there was that moment and you saw it come across their face, his face. Where's mom? Where's dad? And then you see the panic begin to grow. And you see them starting to walk quicker around and they have no clue where they're at. They have no clue where mom or dad are at. And you see them get more and more upset. And then I would walk out and where did they run in their distress? Immediately. Right to me, and they would wrap their arms around me, and they would just want to be with me because they were scared. They were in distress. And when we encounter afflictions and sufferings, that's how we are with our Savior, Jesus Christ. We look for Him. We run to Him. We wrap our arms around Him because we're in, under affliction and stress and distress. We come to him and say, I'm in trouble and I need your help. But what if you don't feel like praying in the midst of afflictions and sufferings? Sometimes we're just mad, true? I just don't want to, I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to see anybody. And I do not want to pray to God because this is his fault. You ever been there? Ever been there? You and I must remember this. It is in these times when you don't feel like praying that you need to pray the most. You need to pray the most. And if you can't find the words, if you're just so wrapped up in the situation, if you can't find the words, then we remember Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We may go to God in prayer and we may be wherever we are at the table or maybe on our knees at the bed, wherever we're at, and we just say, Dear Lord, and there's just silence because we can't even voice what we're feeling. And who is interceding for us on our behalf? the Holy Spirit. And when we're in that place, that is when we need to pray the most. When we recognize that we are trying to run from God, we don't want to face Him. We don't want to be there. Then we need to go to Him and say, Lord God, I don't even know what to say. But I love you and I'm coming to you. You know, we can also pray the words of others who have experienced suffering and afflictions in the Bible. Others who have been have gone to God. We can pray the words of David in the Psalms. How many times did David go to God and poured out his heart because he didn't know what was going on? And maybe he was angry and he didn't understand why his enemies were surrounding him. He didn't understand what God was trying to do in his life. And he would go to God and he would pray. You know, sometimes we can use David's words in our prayers, can't we, when we don't have our own. We can pray the words of Paul as he endured difficult times in ministry, 
There are prayers of God's afflicted people throughout the Bible that we can pray over and over when we do not have the words of our own. God has not left us alone. We have the Holy Spirit who will pray when we don't have words, and we have the Scriptures that we can pray when we don't have words. And when we don't feel like praying, then we need to immediately think, this is the time that I need to more than anything else. We also need to remember that the person we are praying to, Jesus Christ, knows what we are going through. He is acquainted with affliction and suffering, and He left us as an example of what to do in the midst of those trials. Look at Luke chapter 22. And being in agony, He prayed more earnestly, and His sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And being in agony, He prayed what? How did He pray? More earnestly. More earnestly, when we are afflicted, when we are struggling, that is when we need to pray more earnestly. We need to understand that the person that we're coming to, our Lord Jesus Christ, He went through the affliction. He went through the suffering. He understands what has to happen when we need to pray more earnestly. He understands us as our high priest, as our Savior. And now He sits at the right hand of the Father. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And let us draw then with confidence, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace. When? To help in time of need. In the time of need. We're never alone. We have the Holy Spirit. We always have a high priest who is listening. The Holy Spirit will help us with our groanings when we don't know what to say. And the Word of God is full of words of other people who have gone through the same afflictions as we have. We're not on our own in these afflictions. We're not on our own in the sufferings. Who knows the depths of our hearts, the depths of our fears, our distresses, our sufferings, and our afflictions. There is no one who can listen to us like the one who died on the cross to save us. Notice in verse 13 how James ends that first phrase. If anyone among you suffer is suffering, let him pray. He stops. He moves on. He does not say after we bring our afflictions and sufferings to God in prayer that He makes everything okay. He doesn't say that those sufferings and afflictions will go away. Jesus helps us grasp that our prayers are not self-centered. They are not, get me out of this situation, remove me from this unjust affliction. Jesus Christ and His sufferings Before he went to the cross, he helps us see that Christ followers are more interested in God's plan, in God's will, no matter what it costs, because we understand that our trials and tribulations bring him glory. We are not looking to go to God and pray to God in our groanings and our sufferings and afflictions. We're not looking for him to remove them. All we're looking for is that he would help us find a way to endure them in a way that brings him glory. That's what we're looking for. Listen to what Jesus says in his example to us. Matthew 26, 42. 
Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, what's he say? If this cannot pass unless I drink it, what's he say? Your will be done. Did he ask, Lord, if there could be another way, please let it happen. But there can't be. Your will be done. And Jesus Christ got up, and Jesus Christ immediately went to the cross from there on out. What an example we have in affliction and suffering in our Savior. It is natural to ask God to take the suffering away, and that is okay. But if God says no, a Christ follower's response during the suffering and affliction is supernatural. And it's only possible to say, Lord, your will and your way because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And as we are growing in our desire for God's will in our lives, for God's glory more than our comfort, our material possessions, our careers, our personal feelings, our wants and needs, then we will find it easier and easier to respond, your will be done, when our lives are not the focus of what we want, when our comfort is not the focus of what we want, when our 401ks are not the focus of what we want. We come to God and we trust that He has a purpose for the trials and afflictions we experience and we bow humbly before Him, offering our lives to Him to do with whatever He brings to us. So, if a Christ follower is suffering, what does their faith lead them to do? What is it? Pray. Pray. First and foremost, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray. Bring it before Him. With a heart that is focused on His will and His way, and not your escape. What an honor it is to be able to carry all of our troubles to God in prayer. What a comfort it is to know that even when he, the troubles hurt so terribly bad, we know that God is in control and we can trust absolutely what he's doing. But when trouble comes, as we've said, what do we do? We pray. But now he changes. And this almost seems odd because he is so abrupt in his change. He says in verse 13, if anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. You know what James is saying? Suffering Christ followers pray, but they also pray when they're cheerful. They also pray when they're cheerful. Cheerful Christ followers pray. The word cheerful is translated as happy in the NIV, good spirits in the NET, and merry in the King James. And when life is happy and merry and we are in good spirits, Jesus says, James says, excuse me, that we are to sing praises. We are to sing praises. And the verb James uses here is, literally means to sing a psalm. We are to sing a psalm. And we know that this whole passage is focused on prayer, and this helps us recognize that James's command to sing praise is referring to singing a psalm directly towards God, God a psalm of praise, a song of honor, a song of cheer. We pray when we're cheerful. James's point 
A distinguishing characteristic of someone who has been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ is that they will sing psalms of praise to the one who brought the happy life to us. They will fervently praise God because of the joy and cheer that we are experiencing. Most of you here would be tempted to say something like this. No, duh, James. (laughs) No, duh. You got to be kidding. That's obvious. That's obvious. But if we are really honest, if we are really, really honest and truthful with ourselves as we look in the mirror, is that really true? Is that really true? Do we pray in our cheerfulness, in our uh, prosperity, as fervently and as consistently as we do when we're in dire straits? Do we honestly pray that way? Are we just as fervent in our praise for the good times as we are in asking for help in the bad times? Is it really true that we pray just as often and as fervently when things are going well, when the bills are paid, when there is money left for the vacation, when the kids are doing well in school, when the job is satisfying, when everyone is healthy, and when I feel connected to the church, when God is blessing my ministry, do I really pray in the same way as I do when I went out of affliction? Is it not true that when life is cheerful and prayer, cheerful, prayerful, prayerful praise begins to be less and less important and less fervent because life is good life is good is it not true that when life is merry we tend to forget about the one who has sovereignly given us the smooth sailing more often than not the truth is that when times are rough and the tornadoes of life are bearing down on us most everyone will eventually turn to god in prayer and we see that don't we people who have not mentioned god who haven't prayed to god in decades and a tornado or something is coming at them and what do we see them doing Oh, God, please help me. We understand that. But when the sky is clear and life is easy, we often find that prayer is less and less often and less and less fervent and less and less focused. Prayer becomes less important to our lives. And we have to understand something. God knew this would be our tendency. God knew this would be our tendency. And he warned the Israelites about it. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6 for just a second. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Starting in verse 10. This is right after the great Shema. Look at chapter 6 verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, this is Moses speaking, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with, the, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you do what? Forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You know what God is saying? When life is good, when life is going along smoothly, don't forget who gave it to you. And how often do we do that? How often do we fill every waking moment with the things that we want to do 
and we just barely give God praise for what He's given us. We're so busy living the good life. We're so busy experiencing the wonders of creation that we don't have time to fervently pray and to praise Him. God knew that when the life He brings enters the time of relative ease, it is easy to forget about Him, the one who brought it about. I'm pretty sure we are all familiar with the truth of James's statement more than we really want to admit. This would be a good place for us just for a minute to again stop and look in the mirror for the second time today. As been the case throughout James's letter, what James is writing here becomes a test. A test that either gives us great assurance of our salvation or a test that makes us really take a close look at the genuineness of our faith. All the way back in chapter 1, we read in James 1.17 that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The believer knows every good gift comes down from the Father, and in knowing that, they are marked as a people who direct praise and adoration towards the one who provided these gifts. A Christ follower who understands that it is God who is providing the prosperity, God who is providing the merriness and the cheerfulness. They will always turn to God and fervently thank Him, fervently sing psalms to Him, fervently say what? Thank you, God, for what I did not deserve. Because how many of us deserve that life of ease and comfort? Not one. It is only by the grace of God that we experience that. We fervently praise God for our children. We fervently praise God for our material possessions, our vacations, our ministries, our 401ks and our IRAs. We praise God for our spouses. We are marked by this if we have genuine faith. Because we keep directing everybody we meet to the one who provided the good life. Every time we speak to somebody, we are praising God for the good life. We're on a walk and we see the sunset or the sunrise and we praise God for the good life. And the people around us mark us for that because it's not about us. It's not about our hard work. It's about God who gave it to us. However, those who do not know Christ, who by God's grace, even in their sinfulness, experience some of those same gifts that we do, they never direct their praise to the giver of those gifts. They take credit for their good life. They say things like, I worked hard for this. I invested my money well. I sacrificed time and effort to get the schooling. I needed to make myself successful. The things I have are the results of the sweat that I have invested in my life. I have sweat equity built up in this. And what do all of that start with? I. Every single thing is I. If it doesn't begin with I, then they give credit to Mother Nature or fate or destiny or a whole host of other man-made deities 
for their good lives. And their lives are marked by that. Their good lives are marked by self or giving somebody else credit for what God gave them. That is what their lives are marked by. The test comes in this when we ask the question, which one of these genuinely marks your life? If people were to listen to you for the next year, which one would they say shows forth in your life? Which one comes more naturally to you? Praise directed at God for His provision or praise or praise directed at yourself or a man-made deity such as Mother Nature. You want to know something? Every single person here this morning looking in the mirror instinctively knows what your life is marked by. You know. You don't have to go home and think it through. You don't have to fervently pray, God, which side of the fence am I on? You know. You know. There is a significant difference in the outcome between these two very different life characteristics, those things that we're marked by. Those who direct their praise towards God because of they recognize He is the giver of all good gifts will read the rewards that read the rewards of that and be able to praise God for those things for all of eternity. There's eternal value in our salvation. There's eternal value in reaping praise and honor to God for the good life. Those who direct their praise towards themselves or the things, for the things they have accomplished or gained in this life or who give credit to, uh, to fate or destiny or something else, when they die, what do they have? Nothing. Everything they built, everything they accomplished, everything they did is gone and goes to somebody else, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. They die and it's gone. All the effort they have invested in their life is gone. Two very different results. So again, what does the mirror reveal about you this morning? If it reveals that you tend to praise yourself for the good things in your life, more than you praise God, then you have a couple of choices. If you're saved, you can confess your sins and repent of your pride, and God will forgive you. Amen to that. And what the mirror reveals brings praise to your lips because God has grown you in realizing that I'm not where I need to be in my praising of God in the good times. And that's a good thing. That's just being discipled from the Word of God. If you've never considered life from this perspective and God maybe has opened your eyes that you and what you have built, there's actually no eternal value because you don't really give God credit for anything? Then you need to ask, is my faith really genuine? Is my faith really genuine when I look at life as being my life and my accomplishment? If you find yourself there, Please come up to me after the service. Let's talk about life. Let's talk about how that can change through the gospel of Jesus Christ where you can start understanding that the good life that we lead, most of us here, or if not all of us here, is a result of a gracious and heavenly Father that loves us so much.
And if you find that when you look in the mirror that you are one that is learning to praise God for the good life you have more and more and more and more, then praise Him some more because He has given you great assurance of your salvation in Jesus Christ because you see that everything I have accomplished, everything I have, every child that I have, every good thing that has happened in my life is because of Him, not me. And before we pray the close this morning, I would like to leave us with a really positive concluding thought. Christ followers will experience affliction and suffering in this dark, sinful world, and that is a given. And it is okay for us to express ourselves during this time, these times. It is appropriate for us to weep. We find that throughout the Bible. It's appropriate for us to feel pain and anguish. It's appropriate for us to grieve and to feel distressed. But in our hearts, we know God is in control and we trust Him. And that means we never lose hope in our suffering and afflictions because we know there's purpose behind the suffering and we see that in Acts chapter 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. You know why they were praying and singing to God? You know what had just happened to them that day? They had been beaten and put in stocks in the prison. And here they are, in the middle of the night, singing hymns, praising God. And what is pointed out that is happening there? The prisoners notice so it's okay the concluding thoughts it's okay for us to be in distress it's okay for us to bring those these difficult times to god but it's also okay for us to take the difficult times and look at them in light of god and his glory and what he's accomplishing and to sing hymns of praise to him because of the difficulties and the afflictions but here's else, something else it's a wonderful concluding thought Christ followers also experience cheer and merriness during times of ease and prosperity. Amen? It's okay to respond emotionally during these times. When our favorite team wins the championship, it's okay to jeer and jump up and down and get crazy. It is. Think about it. Who allowed your team to win? God did. Can you take joy in that? Yes. It all depends on your perspective on which team it is. But the, is it okay to find joy in that? When our children get good grades, we can feel proud of them. When our spouses walk in the room, it's okay to have our hearts flutter. Mine does all the time. And I get that same look that she just gave me. It's okay in the life that God has given us, in the ease and the prosperity to be cheerful and merry, it's okay. We don't have to be dour. We don't have to be sober. We can enjoy what God has given us. And that's what he's saying in the last part of chapter 5, verse 13. We, when we are cheerful, we sing praises to God because he's given it to us. And sometimes we feel as Christians, we're really not supposed to do that. It's just not true. It's not true. When we get a promotion we worked hard for, it's okay to celebrate. It's appropriate for us to enjoy these things and respond in joy and happiness. And we see that in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 4. There's a time to weep and what? A time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to 
dance, I won't be dancing. There's a time for both. Then later on in chapter 3, verse 13, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. These are God's gifts to us, and we can take joy in them. We can take pleasure in them. But in that response, in that joy, in that jumping up and down, in those things that we take great delight in, there is always must be praise and adoration directed towards God. It needs to continue. Everything that happens that makes us happy, we need to end that praise and that adoration by looking at God and fervently praying Him and fervently thanking Him and fervently singing psalms to Him because He's the one that provided it. Sometimes we just get excited about our good life and never, ever admit it to anybody or to God Himself, the one who provided it. We need to be as fervent in our prayers in the good times as we are fervent in our prayers when we are suffering affliction and, and suffering. And in some ways, I think that when the good times are there, that is more difficult for us to remember to praise the one who gave it to us because we're just living the good life. We're just living the good life. It's day in and day out. And we forget that God provided that. So, for the third time this morning, looking in the mirror as Michelle comes to the piano, how's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? Because we're going to continue looking at our prayer lives next week. This is only the first two parts of our prayer life that we're looking at this morning. And so just in light of that, how's your prayer life when life, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, because you're having to take stands and you, people notice that you're a Christ follower, how do you respond when suffering and affliction comes to your life? Do you try to hide it and do you try to run from it? Do you try to remove it from your life or do you stand up and you say, Lord God, this is part of what you've given my life and you pray fervently that God remove it and when he doesn't, you say, Lord God, help me bring glory to you. Is that part of your prayer life? I would think a lot of us would say, yeah, I'm getting better at that. Amen, God is growing you. But there's also the other part. When life is easy and we have the things that bring us joy, does our prayer life show that we praise the one who gave it to us? Are we as fervent in that? Are we as fervent in those prayers as we are in pain and suffering? I'm giving testimony of my life right now. God has blessed me more than I ever deserve. More than I ever deserve. And I want to Learn to praise Him more day in and day out because of those blessings and not just ask Him to rescue me from my pain and suffering. Let's don't forget He is a blessed, gracious, heavenly Father who has provided us with everything we have in life. Let's be consistent in our prayers.